Udhang Dhammang Sanghang So this evening we had the pleasant experience of witnessing Viet and Craig determining the Anagarka precepts and formally joining our community here. And at the beginning of this stage of your training, maybe it's useful to highlight some of the fundamental principles. What are we doing here? It's understandable that, particularly in the beginning, of joining a, an ancient tradition, been around for 2,600 and something years, and it certainly didn't start in Northumberland, started in India, and then it moved around and ended up in Thailand, and from where we've inherited it. And, and it's not always obvious why we do some of the things that we do. As I was saying, particularly in the beginning, there a lot of things to learn. People keep telling you, do this, don't do that. And precepts, increased precepts to keep, and regulations and expectations. And sometimes you might even get confused and wonder, well, what did I do this for? And Yesterday, you were quite clear, or maybe this morning even, you were quite clear about why you wanted to do it. However, as time goes by and the pressure of the training starts to have its effect, then you can get disoriented and lose perspective. So I would recommend that that um, you bear in heart, bear in mind, the basic principles of why we're living this way. What is it we're doing this for? What is it that brought you to this life? And I would suggest that there's, at least in this monastery, in this training, there are, there are three fundamental principles that you could usefully bear in mind and help you understand what's going on here and help support you. And the first one, which I expect is very obvious, is that we are all committed to transforming the deluded sense of self into something that is more suitable, something that's beautiful, something that's worthy, selfless wisdom, selfless compassion. That's what the Buddha symbolizes for us, perfect selfless wisdom and compassion. And we have faith that the realization of this is there's a potential within human beings and so we take up a training accordingly. And However, just having belief in that possibility or even having faith in that possibility without really recognizing what is it that obstructs that, what is it that we're dealing with, what is it that gets in the way, it's this deluded sense of self that gets in the way. And so... The transformation of the deluded sense of self, that's primary. And, and so being ready to recognize it. As time goes by, deepen our appreciation of the all-pervading tricks that this deluded sense of I gets up to. It really likes to be in charge. My way of doing things 
That's when it shows itself. When, when I don't get my way, then the deluded sense of self becomes apparent and we want to be ready for it. That's not a sign that we're failing. That's why we're training, because we want to see this. We want to see that which obstructs wisdom and compassion, that which is not the Buddha's way, that which is not Dhamma, and that which is an expression of the commitment to my way. And so the training will, if we're training properly, will bring this to the surface. Like the image we've often talked about that the Buddha gave of purifying gold and you turn up the heat and the dross comes to the surface and so it is with this training, with the discipline, with the restrictions that we put ourselves under, it does increase the heat and the pressure and and then that which is dross, uh, that which is not according with the Buddha's way, with Dhamma, is more likely to become apparent. So let's be ready for that. Let's keep being ready for that. Let's increase our readiness for that. How long does it take before we honestly own up to, oh, right, that's what's going on. And this is the transformation of the deluded sense of self. And that's primary, that's core. Sometimes it might be that we forget that and, and think that just living together is a bunch of guys kind of meditating and being peaceful and having a rather agreeable life is the point. That's not the point. If we can live together agreeably and having a nice life and be living perfectly in accordance with the Buddha's way, then yes, that's wonderful. However, the truth is that we have all these obstructions. We have this commitment to my way. And so when it shows itself, let's not judge it, let's not dismiss it, let's not avoid it, let's own up to it. So, so when, like, you're doing, you're doing the dishes and you're drying and the person who's washing is being ever so mindful and ever so slow and you just want to go back and have a rest and you know, I can't stand this guy, why is he always, he's always like this, why do they always put me on dishes with this creep? I can't, that's it. I can't stand it, that's it. Well, why does she always come late for puja? Why does the Ajja not have a word with her? She's always late and she always makes a noise. I, no, I'm just not going to put up with it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. That's it. That's my way. The concepts that we have about Dhamma, those are the approximations. That's the Pariyati. The patipati, the practice, is the application, the quality of attention we bring to that expression of our untamed heart. And that resistance, that rejection, that denial of the way things are. I won't put up with this any longer. That's it. So it takes training to be ready for it. Often when that untamed heart expresses itself out of action or speech or thoughts even if we don't do anything or say anything it can go up to our heads and there's all these thoughts going round in our heads round and round and round and then I'm going to go and tell them this and I'm going to on the level of theory on the level of pariyati on the level of approximation
approximations, we can study the Dhamma and be really impressed with the theory and how wonderful it is, how lucid it is. And that's very, very different from when we actually engage the consequence of our untamed hearts. Very different altogether, completely different. Here, you're committing ourselves to training and practicing the Buddha's way. It's guaranteed that we will encounter the feeling of my way. And are we ready for it? Are we ready to accept the consequences of the deluded self and humbly submit ourselves to the training, which often requires patience? Even if we've read the teachings and we have great faith in the teachings and we want to be free from the deluded sense of self, just wanting and wishing and hoping doesn't do it. Often what's called for is a lot of gentle patience, willing, bearing with, bearing with the consequences of unawareness. So, primarily transforming the deluded sense of self into something that's more suitable, ultimately aiming for selfless wisdom and compassion. And the tools that we use in this process to be willing to become skilled in using those tools, like the tools in our spiritual toolkit. We all have a spiritual toolkit, things that we turn to when we we need help. Many different tools. However, I would suggest that there's five in particular, five tools that it's essential we learn how to use. The first one is the tool of a commitment to integrity, which takes training. Again, we have habits of compromising and telling ourselves stories and maybe sometimes we in chatting have a nice cup of tea with our friends and we catch ourselves exaggerating or even misrepresenting the truth and and then we afterwards remember that wasn't that wasn't honest and then what happens we feel bad well if we're training properly we're supposed to feel bad that's called heliotopa that's that's a wholesome sense of shame that's the training the theory of integrity. We can read what the Buddha said about the five precepts or the eight precepts or the ten precepts or the 227 precepts and be impressed by the system that the Buddha laid out. However, the practice is learning how to own up to our heedlessness again. And in that moment of feeling the painful consequences of having come close to, or even hopefully not, but maybe even if you do cross the boundary, do something that isn't in keeping with the training, that feeling of remorse, how willing are we to receive that? That's the training in integrity. Not just believing that a commitment to integrity is necessary or a good idea, it's being willing to learn from our mistakes. So that's the first of of the tools that we need to be really skilled in using. The second is sati, uh, disciplined attention. If we don't have disciplined attention, then we're not going to learn. It's just we're not there. Even if we do have a great faith in the Buddha's teachings, if we're not really present for the experience, you know, like, for instance, if we make a mistake and our heart tells us, oh, that was off, that wasn't right, and there's the pain there. If we don't have sati, if we don't have disciplined attention, we don't notice it. 
if our mind is all over the place and we're just dreaming and thinking about stuff, we're not really there for it, we don't learn. Ajahn Chah had an expression talking about when you don't have enough sati, he said, kaat sati which is quite a heavy thing to say, really. What it literally means is when you're not present for your experience, when you don't have sati, you're crazy. Well, we could also, instead of saying crazy, we could also say when you're not really present for experience, when there's not sati, sufficiently dis- disciplined attention, then we're in a state of diminished responsibility. We can't really take responsibility for our actions. So that's a core and essential tool to learn how to be skilled in using of all the tools in our spiritual toolkit. Sati, or disciplined attention. And then the third one, which is conscious composure. Indriya Samura. The ability, the willingness to say no. That even if we're keeping the moral precepts, there's still plenty of opportunity for us to just follow habits of indulgence. And when we do that, like for instance, when we indulge in the pleasure of, of eating, particularly on festival days when our generous supporters bring so much yummy food to the monastery and, and you just fill your bowl full of cookies and eat too much and, and then after the meal you can't wait to go to bed and sleep and wake up feel disgusting. And what was that about? Why? Not because we're bad or we're mad, it's just a habit of indulging. It didn't steal the food, it's not, we weren't breaking your precepts, but it's a lack of conscious composure, the inability or the unwillingness to say no. And one reason why this is so important is that if we can't say no, then we can't really say yes. To really examine our hearts and minds, we need to be open and willing to meet ourselves where we're at. We need to be able to say yes to our hearts and minds. However, if we don't know that we can trust ourselves, then we can't really say yes. So before we can say yes, we need to learn to say no. Again, to quote an example Ajahn Chah gave about this is talking about dyeing our robes. In Thailand we would dye our robes using the, the juice of the jackfruit tree and and it takes a lot of work chopping the, the heartwood to get the, the chips and then to boil the chips and to get the resin out. And to, It takes a lot of work to do it. And, and then you've got your white cloth. If you don't wash the white cloth before you put it in the dye bath, actually the dye doesn't take. The white cloth has got this finishing on it. There's chemicals that they put on cloth and when they manufacture it. And so we have to wash, or if the cloth is dirty, you know, you've got to wash the cloth first. You've got to clean the cloth before we put it in the dye bath, otherwise the dye won't take. So it is with the willingness and the ability to say no to our untamed tendencies of heart and mind. The stories that we like to tell, self-promoting stories, or coming up with new ideas about things. It's particularly uh, evident for young people joining the community, uh, coming with new ideas about how we could do things differently. And, and it's true, maybe we could do things differently. However, are you able to inhibit the tendency to suggest that we do things differently? 
because if you can't inhibit the tendency to suggest we do things differently, then really what comes out is compulsiveness. The same with offering feedback to somebody. Maybe an occasion where we do need to point out something difficult to another person in the community and maybe they don't want to hear it. If we approach it from a place of compulsion, I've just got to tell this person. If we can't choose to not tell them, well then what the person will hear is our compulsiveness, our judgment. We're driven into action. And so the willingness to be able to inhibit the compulsive exuberance of our hearts and minds or conscious composure, indriya sangra, that willingness to inhibit the compulsive tendencies is essential. And it's an essential tool in our spiritual toolkit that we need to learn to be skilled in using. The fourth tool that we need to really need to be skilled in using is I would suggest is conscious caring. We have great aspiration and great enthusiasm. We're willing to give up a lot to join a community like this and to and to take up a training like this. However, if we forget the natural warm-hearted inclination to care, then we can throw ourselves out of balance, even with all our enthusiasm and our zeal and our commitment. The heart has a natural tendency for caring, like, like if a baby bird learning to fly just suddenly flies into the conservatory and, and hurts itself, smashing into a window. And you, what do you do? You, of course you care, you pick it up, you care about this little creature and take it outside and put it somewhere safe. And or of joining a community like this, your parents don't understand you and they think you're joining some weird cult or other and they get upset and disappointed and and you care about them. You don't want them to be hurt. And so that natural caring it's important, I would say, it's essential that we maintain connection with that. And more than maintaining connection with that, we work on it, we cultivate it, we become skilled in accessing conscious caring with regards to ourselves and with regards to each other. Everybody suffers. Everybody who has still got work to do suffers. And, and so we're all here in this community working at being honest about our suffering and dealing with the causes of suffering. And the last thing we need is for, for cold-heartedness, you know, people who don't care about us. It, it really helps. It makes an enormous difference when we live with each other, if we're able to express conscious caring. So the fourth uh, essential tool that I would suggest that we need to become skilled in using in our spiritual toolkit is wise reflection. We might have really good sila and commitment to integrity and, and disciplined attention and conscious composure and conscious caring. All of that is great. However, if we're not willing to ask the right kind of questions in the right way at the right time, then 
there's a real chance that we're not going to undo the tangles of the deluded self. This task, this primary task that we're engaged in, developing skill and using these tools, is, it's a very tricky task. Don't underestimate the deviousness of the deluded sense of self. And we need to be skilled in learning how to ask the right kind of question at the right time in the right way. If we are not skilled in that, then we can be asked the wrong kind of question, like there's all sorts of questions, like, for instance, the four imponderables that you may have heard of. If you don't know what the four imponderables are that the Buddha taught about, then you can do some research and find out. And there's some questions you shouldn't ask, not just because the Buddha didn't want us to ask them. But there are other good reasons why we shouldn't ask them. And there are other good reasons for questions that we should ask, like, for instance, you know, why am I actually suffering? right now? That's a really good question when you're suffering. We can be so caught up in the attractive fantasy of being free from suffering that even when we're suffering, which we're bound to do from time to time, and the Buddha encourages us to investigate suffering so that we can let go of suffering, even though that's the opportunity, if we're so caught up in the fantasy of being free from suffering, like Becoming happy, which is very normal, it's a very normal kind of addiction, distraction in our world. Everybody thinks that they should be more happy, and if you think the spiritual life is about being happy, then we're not asking the right questions. There's a very useful story in the scriptures of where some of you might be familiar with, where the Buddha said was staying in what was called the potter's shed. Place to stay with the potter, let him stay in his shed. And it wasn't just the Buddha in the potter's shed, there was another fellow there as well. And this other fellow was telling the Buddha about how he was on this spiritual journey to find this great teacher, this awakened teacher, this master who had all the answers to his suffering. His name was the Buddha. And he spent the whole night in the same place as the Buddha, but because he was so caught up in his fantasy, his his story about the journey to find the Buddha and what was going to happen when he found the Buddha that he didn't even realize he was right there with the Buddha. That's what happens when we're caught up in our stories, when we don't know how to ask the right question at the right time in the right way, we can end up asking the wrong questions, like how can I be happy? That's not a good question. It's an understandable one. It's okay, so long as we hold it lightly. The more important question is, What is the nature of our unhappiness? Because that's what we've got a lot of the time. Even when we're relatively happy, we can be spoiling it by getting lost in it. Like the example I gave a minute ago of indulging in the yummy food that gets offered and indulging in it, it feels happy at the time. But when we're indulging in it, what we're doing, and we don't see what we're doing, we're actually indulging in feeling altogether. And then when it changes and we have a bad feeling, like disappointment, like sadness, like disillusionment, we can't help but indulge in that. We indulge in feeling, we indulge in feeling. We attach to feeling, we attach to feeling. Not just pleasant but pleasant and painful feeling. So when we're feeling like we're suffering, we need to have access to the skill, this particular tool in our spiritual toolkit. 
so that we can ask the right question at the right time in the right way. And particularly in the right way, not just like, why am I suffering? Uh, no, no, in the right way with conscious caring. So, of the three principles that that uh, I would recommend that you bear in mind, this is the first one, the transformation of the deluded sense of self. The second principle, which you may or may not be aware of, but is really important, is translating this tradition that we've inherited, the Theravadan forest tradition from Thailand. And it does require an exercise in translation, a conscious exercise in translation. And if you don't appreciate that that's part of what we're doing here, then maybe some of the form, some of the practices that we do don't make sense to you. It wasn't so long ago that one young monk from here went to train in a monastery in Thailand and and he'd been living here for three or four or five years and and then after he'd been in Thailand for a, a few weeks or a few months I I was speaking on the phone to the abbot of the monastery in Thailand where he was living and and he praised this young monk saying how well trained he was how how easily he fitted in over there and I, I felt so pleased right that's that means the training's working to have the opportunity to go to Thailand where there've been centuries and centuries of people practicing to undo the deluded sense of self to awaken to freedom from suffering centuries and centuries of practice you know, I want you to have access to that if we abandon and forget our indebtedness to this tradition and disrespect the tradition then there's a good chance that you won't have access to to that lineage to those benefits and so part of what we do here in our training is to translate the tradition it's got to be done skillfully carefully and gently like if you've ever transplanted saplings like for instance if you go down to Chithurst Monastery for Katina and at the end of the year and I say oh we've got these saplings you can take them up and plant them down at your lake and you don't need them and so okay we'll, we'll take some saplings and so they dig the saplings up and say well I don't want the soil I just want the saplings and so you wash the plants, the roots, under the tap, and then you say, oh, nice clean roots, very good, that's good, and put them in a plastic bag, bring them up here and plant them, and they all die. What happened? Useless saplings? No, it just wasn't a very intelligent way of transplanting the saplings. And when you washed all the soil off, you also happened to wash all the little roots off. You didn't see them because they're so fine, but those little roots, those are what are absorbing the nutrients. We don't see them. And so when we're transplanting a sapling, we need to be careful. And likewise, when we're translating a tradition, it's not always immediately obvious what this means or that means. And so we're careful in this process. And like when we first came here to, to live in England, Ajahn Chah said the monks had to cover their both shoulders with their robes when they were doing pujas and doing chanting. And sitting meditation together in the evening because the monks were wearing all these strange coloured jumpers and and t-shirts and it looked very untidy and so Ajahn Chah said okay you've got to cover both shoulders and so that's what happened for the first 
few years. And then, seemed, well, it's a pity to lose the tradition that's been around for many, many centuries of, of bearing your right shoulder. It's a tradition from India where you, as a gesture of respect to the teacher, you bear your right shoulder. And it was a diff- it's a pity to lose that tradition. And so we tried with these jackets that we're now all wearing. These jackets were created and you, you can wear any old color jumper or t-shirt under your jacket and it doesn't matter, you still look tidy. And thought, well, is this going to be okay with the elders in Thailand? And so Ajahn Sumedha went over to Thailand and respectfully informed them what we were doing with wearing these jackets. And as it happened, they didn't care, they weren't interested. They trusted us. And who knows why they trusted us, but I suspect that at least in part it was because Ajahn Sumedha hadn't jumped to changing everything. He'd showed respect to the teaching and showed respect to the teacher. And then... When it did come time to change, it was done carefully. And so this is part of the process of translation. And it's important you understand this because sometimes here in the training, they why do we still do this for? Why are we doing that? And so, well, maybe it's not immediately obvious. Maybe one day we will change it. Maybe now it's not the right time. So appreciating this basic principle, we're translating a tradition here. We've inherited this tradition and we want to maintain our connection with the lineage and that takes a lot of skill. And the third principle, which again I would like to encourage you to commit to heart and to to mind, is protecting what we inherited from Ajahn Chah. That these places wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah had a distinct way of presenting the teachings and all of you would be aware of how well known he is these days all around the world it wasn't that long ago and he wasn't well known at all however Ajahn Chah had had just something that meant his teachings connected with people and so now there are I don't know how many hundreds of monasteries there are in Thailand and, and around the world people who find Ajahn Chah's teachings relevant. And it's easy to forget the great sacrifices that Ajahn Chah made to arrive at his understanding, his wisdom, his level of competence. He made huge sacrifices and there were some very basic principles that he held to be particularly important. And one of those was a community practice. So learning how to cooperate with each other. It's true in some monasteries in Thailand, in Burma, Sri Lanka. You go there and you get given a kuti, you go off and you just do your own thing all day long. They give you food in the morning and then leave you alone. Don't even have to do any sweeping activity or draw water from the well or do any such activities. You just go and meditate. Ajahn Chah wasn't keen on that approach. Quite the opposite, he encouraged us to do sweeping leaves together, pulling water from the well together, chanting together, sitting meditation together, going in arms round together. The, The effort it takes to put up with each other, as far as Ajahn Chah was concerned, is very effective means of bringing into awareness my way the tangle of the self-delusion 
It's very easy, in fact, when you live in your own little hermitage, doing your own thing, to be convinced that you've got all sorts of things sorted out, that when you end up in a situation that you find disagreeable, you suddenly discover that you haven't got them sorted out after all. So sometimes in the community here where you are asked to do things that you maybe find not necessarily particularly agreeable, maybe you don't want to do group practice, maybe you don't want to help on the late work day, can't see the point in being around other people and when the Ajahn sets up a, a Sangha tea session together and we, we meet together and talk together and say, why do we keep doing that? Why can't we just be alone in our kuti? This idea of community. We had that once. We had some, one monk living here who he told me to my face, this is not a community, it's just a bunch of individuals who happen to be living together. And I go, oh, well, I didn't say too much. I just felt sorry for him. There's a great benefit in spiritual community. My dear friend, the late Barney Shorter, referred to spiritual community as the harmonious residence of shared aspiration. Those of you that have played music know what it's like when you, you get an orchestra or a band playing together. There's something particularly beautiful gets struck up when people listen to each other and cooperate. Yes, soloists can be beautiful too. Listening to a band or listening to an orchestra can be particularly beautiful. And so too in spiritual community when people know how to cooperate, how to listen to each other, attend to each other, support each other. To finish this evening, I encourage uh, Beat and Craig to Commit to memory, commit to mind, commit to heart, these three principles, the, the transformation of the deluded sense of self into something that's suitable and beautiful, the translation of this tradition that we have the good fortune to have inherited, and the protection of the, the legacy from Ajahn Chah. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of the whole community in saying, welcome. Thank you very much for saving your attention. Maya, Dara, 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 Dara,